Let's get into our Bible study, John chapter 8. So we're in verse uh, 13. John chapter 8, verse 13. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that your mercies are, are new for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you set us free. And if that we're free, we're free indeed. So we invite you into this time. We just pray for clarity in our hearts and our minds that we could receive your word, that we could be fertile soil. Pray for grace and strength in communicating your word. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Remembering the context of John 8 is so important because the Feast of Tabernacles has just taken place. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time where they would remember God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. And really celebrating two things, God's provision of water and God's provision of light. Jesus comes to the Feast of Tabernacles and lets us know on the last day of the feast that he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, that he is a living water. As we went into chapter 8, then he focuses on the fact that he's the light of the world, specifically in an individual's life. Here comes a woman who had been caught in adultery. They set up this trap for Jesus. If you happen to miss last week's study, I would go back and listen to it online because Jesus got down on the ground and he began to write something specific that got the attention from the oldest to the youngest of the accusers and they leave one by one and Jesus asks, where are your accusers? And she says, none. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Jesus provides forgiveness and he provides freedom. Aren't you so thankful that God provides freedom from our sin? That he forgives us from our sin, but he also provides a a path forward of a changed and transformed life. Go your way and sin no more. I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that's going to light your path. And as we continue, we pick up in in verse 13, then the Pharisees continue to be really mad at Jesus, and Christ confronts the Pharisees in our text this morning. Then the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. We don't accept your witness, we don't accept uh, your testimony, because you bear witness of yourself. That's the complaint that they're bringing against Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from and where I'm going. Jesus is saying, even if I bear witness of myself, even though he has the witness of the Father, he says, my testimony is true, and I know where I'm coming from, and I know where I'm going. Jesus knew that he came from the Father, And he knows that he's going to return to the Father. As believers, as God's children, we have the absolute joy of knowing where we've come from. Isn't that kind of a nagging question that a lot of people ask that don't know the Lord? How did I get here? Did I simply evolve out of matter? Did I evolve out of of dirt? Am I just merely an animal? Or am I created by God? And we know that we're created by God. We know where we came from. But we also know where we're going. 
There's so many twists and turns in life, so many unexpected things. In fact, the one thing that we can expect in life that it's going to be unexpected. We can't figure out the trials and even sometimes the joys of life, but this is what's certain in Christ is that we have eternal life, don't we? We know where we're going. We know that each day that we live, we're closer to heaven. You're closer to heaven than you've ever been before. And we're also closer to the rapture of the church than we've ever been before. We know where we're going, just like Christ. In verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. The way that they're judging Jesus is according to the flesh, not according to righteousness, not according to spiritual things. And then Jesus says that he judges no one, but he does go on to pronounce judgment on the religious leaders. So what does he mean by saying that he judges no one? It's that his heart is not to bring judgment, but to bring salvation. And hopefully you know that about the Lord. It's not his will that any would perish. He would much rather bring forgiveness that comes through faith than to bring judgment. In verse 16, And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Something in this chapter that's so beautiful is we see the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus almost can't go a sentence without mentioning it. And he says, look, my judgment is true because I'm with the Father. My Father and I are making this judgment uh, together. It's the Father who bears witness of me. I bear witness of myself, but even more so, the Father bears witness of me. Remember on two occasions, the Father speaks audibly from heaven at the baptism of Christ and also the Mount of Transfiguration, and what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is my boy. I'm bearing witness of him. In verse 18, verse 19, then they said to him, where is your father? Who's your daddy? That's the essence of the question right there. Who's your father? They're absolutely going for the jugular here. Remember the virgin birth and Mary not being married to Joseph when she got pregnant And that put this cloud of skepticism on the birth of Christ. And what they're saying to Jesus is, you don't even know who your dad is. Here you're saying that your father sent you, and you don't even know who your father is. Jesus answered and said, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Jesus is speaking of his heavenly father. And he's saying, if you had known the father, then you would know me. And this is still the litmus test today. If someone says they believe in God, they're going to embrace Jesus. If someone says, well, I believe in God, but I reject Jesus, they've missed it completely. Because Jesus is God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are are one. If someone says, well, I believe in the God of the Old Testament, but I reject Jesus, then Jesus would say, you really don't know the Father. You don't know God. In verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. This kind of confrontation that Jesus is having is taking place right at the temple mount in the treasury. And they want to kill Christ, 
but no one dares lay a hand on him because it's not his hour to be crucified. Who's in control here? Is it the Pharisees? This is the most powerful place that they have, is the Temple Mount. And yet they can't lay a hand upon Christ, and it shows that heaven is in control, that Jesus is in control. This is a really intense section of scripture. This is an intense back and forth. And Jesus is very self-controlled as a lamb, but he's very strong as a lion. And that's what I love about Christ, this amazing balance of him being a lion and a lamb. In his humility, but then also in his strength. And we go on into verse 22. In verse 21, then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin, singular. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus says, you're going to die in your sin. Why is it singular? Because as we go on to read, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They've rejected that Jesus is God. This is the singular sin that will cause you to be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. It's the rejection of Christ, the rejection of who he is, that he's God, the rejection of what he's done, that he died upon the cross for your sins and rose again. And this is the most serious thing when it comes to our lives. Have we come to faith in Jesus Christ? It's not if someone rejects Christ at a particular moment in time, but continuing to reject Christ throughout their life then it results in them dying in their sins. And Jesus calls out their spiritual condition. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Here is the second punch in the face to Jesus verbally. The first was, who's your daddy? You don't even know who your dad is. And the second is, well, are you going to kill yourself? And that's why we can't go where you're going. Jesus continues to say, Where I'm going, you cannot come. The rabbis at this point in time taught that if you commit suicide, that you were destined to condemnation and the worst part of Hades because you committed suicide. So they're saying, Jesus, if you're going to a place that we can't go to, well, then you must be going to hell because we're not going to hell. And really placing damnation upon Christ. In verse 23 And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I'm not of this world. Do you see the self-control of Jesus? He could have returned evil for evil here, but he's very calm, but very strong, and says you're from beneath. You're saying that I'm going to hell? Well, in reality, you are from hell. You're following the influence of hell And I'm not of this world. And Jesus gives to us a mission statement of his life that he didn't march to the drum of this world. He wasn't living for this world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and and the pride of life. He was focused on heaven. He was focused on pleasing his father and counting what's going to matter for all of eternity. As we follow Christ, it's Christ's intention to take us from our affections being on the things of this world and placing them on things that are really going to matter. How does God do that? A lot of times he does it in three ways. The first is through our treasure. 
Our heart follows treasure, and that's why God tells us to invest our finances in things of eternity. God doesn't need our money, right? But he instructs us to give, he instructs us to tithe, because he knows that as we give financially, we give of our treasure, that our heart's going to follow treasure. When we invest time into the things of God, our heart follows follows treasure. So investing treasure is a way of putting our affection towards, towards heaven. It's the best thing for us. But also trials really put our attention towards heaven, doesn't it? There's nothing like a good old-fashioned can kicking that gets me looking forward to heaven. When it's hard, when it's difficult, I start to think about heaven, rejoice in heaven. This is the worst that it's ever going to be, is right here, right now. Trials put our hearts towards heaven. But a third way, not just treasure and trials, but also transfers. When God takes a loved one home to be with the Lord, heaven gets very real, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we, we start to realize this isn't just a fairy tale that is made up, but this is a place. And my parent, my sibling, my spouse, my best friend is with the Lord. That as I sing to the Lord, that they're experiencing what I can only imagine. Hear these words, Colossians chapter 3, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you're raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's what Christ is saying. That's what he's declaring when he says, I'm not of this world. Verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am... He is in italics, which means it's added by the translators. You will die in your sins. This statement where Jesus says, I am, is a declaration of his deity. If you've been studying with us through the Gospel of John, you know this ties back to the book of Exodus. When Moses asks who's sending him back to Egypt, and God says, I am, this is a name for God. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, the great I am. And here Jesus says, I am. These are Jews that he's speaking to that are experts in the Old Testament. They know exactly that Jesus is claiming to be God. And what does Jesus say here? If you don't believe that I am, if you don't believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. So is it necessary to believe that Jesus is God in order to be saved? Yes. Yes, it is, and that's very important. Because if you don't believe Jesus is God, then who's dying for your sins? At that point, a man is dying for your sins. And is Jesus a man? Yes. He chose to come in human flesh. But is he also God? Yes. This is where Christianity parts with many other religions that include Jesus in their religion. They say we're Christians because we believe in Jesus. And you have to ask the question, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, we don't believe he's God. And we go, wait a second, then we have two different Jesus. Somewhere you've departed from the Jesus of the Bible. Does that make sense? And bring them to John chapter 8 and say, hey, let's have a discussion because here Jesus is saying that he's God. And if you don't believe that he's God, then you're not saved. 
If anybody tells you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, bring them to John chapter 8. Because he says right here, I am. And then take them back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 and go, here God calls himself the great I am. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. In verse 25, then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Christ is so patient. Say, guys, we've been going through this for a while, and I keep telling you the same thing over and over. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard from him. You see the relationship with the Father? As he's hearing from the Father, then he's declaring those things to the world. They didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father, of God, his, his Father. In verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, I love this, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. When you lift up the Son of Man. Who are going to be the ones that orchestrate the crucifixion of Christ? It's the religious leaders. Jesus says, when you crucify me, then you're going to know that I'm God. Then you're going to know that I didn't do these things of myself, that I didn't come for my own glory. Of all of the things that Jesus could have said that proves that he's God, he chooses to focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection. He didn't say, when I feed the 5,000, then you'll know that I am. He didn't say, when I cast out the demons, then you'll know that I am. When I calm the storm, then you'll know that I'm God. He says, when I'm lifted up upon the cross, then you'll know that I'm God. What's the story of God? What's the testimony of God? What is this all about? Could you sum all of this up in a sentence or two? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The apostle Paul, when he came to the city of Corinth, which was highly intellectual, Greeks, intelligent, he says, I'm determined to know one thing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified because it's the testimony of God. This is God's story. And I'd rather be considered a fool, but declare to you the, the power of God. And I suggest to you as well this morning, what causes us to be confident that Jesus is God is because he died for our sins and he rose again. What's really going to change people's minds about Christ as we have opportunity to share with them? It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we had a half hour, an hour to share with an unbeliever over a cup of coffee, what would we talk about? My goodness, I hope we sure don't talk about politics, right? That's, that's not our message. That's not our primary message, <gasps> right? I hope we don't f focus on trivial things. I hope we focus on, you know what? God loves you and he proved it by dying on the cross for your sins, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and declaring to them what Jesus has done. Because when Jesus is lifted up, when he was crucified, that's when they would know that he is the great I am. In verse 29, 
And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. The Father is with Christ. That fellowship that Jesus has with the Father, the relationship. And then Jesus lives to please the Father. Verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Isn't that awesome? As he spoke of the cross, many believed. Some didn't believe, but many chose to believe. Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him. Now he's focusing on the Jews who responded in faith. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The word abide means to continue. It means to live in. It means to welcome God's word into our lives, allow God's word to be at home in us. Disciple is someone who follows, that's chosen to follow Christ. How do we know if we're a follower of Jesus is if God's word abides in us, if we continue in God's word. Then notice the promise that happens as we continue in the word of God. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So here we are continuing in God's word and as we continue in God's word, then we know the truth. And the truth sets us free. We have freedom in the truth, the power of the word of God. As we go through John 8, can you see the contrast of truth and lie? We have the Pharisees who are religious, trusting in their own works, actually under the influence of Satan. And then you have Jesus declaring the truth of who he is. What's the truth in context of John 8? It's to believe that Jesus is the great I am. And when you believe that Jesus is the great I am, guess what? You're in relationship with Jesus and he sets you free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have, been in, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? What really stuck out to me about this verse, catch this, is they didn't realize their own bondage. They feel that they're free because they're Abraham's descendants. Hey, the screen just went, went out. That's pretty cool. Hey, it's back. That's great. Sometimes I watch it just for fun. So. Sometimes people feel that they're free simply because of their lineage. Well, mom and dad are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. Well, well I'm an American. And they fail to see their bondage b- before the Lord. Here they say, we've never been in bondage. Well, I remember them being in bondage to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians. As this is being written, they're in bondage to the Romans. They started off in bondage to the Egyptians. There's a lot of bondage in Israel's history, but they fail to see their own bondage. A lot of times before we come to know Christ as our Savior, we don't see our bondage to sin. Maybe you're considering trusting Christ for salvation, believing that he's God, it's important to see your bondage and realize, apart from Christ, that I'm lost. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Jesus doesn't argue this point of bondage. He simply proves bondage. He says, do you sin? Well, if you sin, then you're a slave to sin. This is why we need Christ. This is why we need a Savior. And a slave does not abide in the house 
forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Christ loved to use things that were part of daily life in his teaching. Slavery is huge in the Roman Empire, maybe at its peak of all of history. Everyone was familiar with slavery in one form or another, and Jesus said, a slave doesn't abide in the house forever. The slave is not promised to be in that house forever, but the son abides in the house forever. This is the great thing with sonship and daughtership. My parents live in South Denver, and I can go up there whenever I want, right? I know the code to the garage. I know where the refrigerator is. I know where the coffee is. There's a welcomed invitation to just come by, to to stop in. Why? Because I'm their son. With our four kids, even though they're younger and they still live in our home, they're always welcome in our home. I don't care what's going on in their life. Say, hey, you're, you're my son. You're, you're my daughter. It's sonship. It's daughtership. This is a place of, of refuge. This is a place that you can, you can come. And we can talk about things. We can, we can pray together. It's the reality of not being a slave, but being a son. And then Jesus says in verse 36, and I think this is the key to the text, the key to John chapter 8, is if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. A slave can't change their own status, no matter how hard you try. But the son could change the status of the slave and say, you are no longer a slave, but you are free. And this is what Jesus has done for us. As God, he came and was crucified and rose again to all those who believe. He sets us free from sin through relationship. And not only are we free from sin, but we are adopted children of God. We are adopted sons and daughters of God, and we're brought into this father relationship that's so dear to Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's speaking to Mary Magdalene. He says, I want you to go and tell the disciples that I'm alive and that I'm going to ascend to my father and your father. This is a new relationship. This isn't the relationship of the old covenant. This is the relationship of grace that we get to have a relationship with God. And it's a dear and intimate one where he is our dad. And because of that relationship, because of that grace, we're free. Church, you're free. Church, you're free. Because of your relationship with Christ. This is not something that you have to work for. This is not something that you have to earn or deserve. This happens through faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we contrast this with the law. We contrast this with the Pharisees who were really good at religion, but they don't have relationship with God. They don't have faith with God, and they're not free. If we were to take the woman who was caught in adultery and the Pharisees at the end of the chapter, who's free? The woman who was caught in adultery. Why? Because she came into relationship with Jesus. She came into relationship with the light of the world. You know what this means? Is that Jesus loves you and that he's with you and he can't wait to spend time with you. He's looking forward to spending some time with you this afternoon. He's looking forward to tomorrow morning when you wake up to seek him. Relationship. You have a father that enjoys spending time with you, the creator of the universe. Sometimes I wonder why he enjoys spending time with me. 
right? But that's his grace. That's his love that he has for us. Who the son is set free is free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The reason they want to kill Christ is because they haven't opened up their hearts to the word of God, even though they're around the word of God, even though they hear the word of God. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Jesus is saying, I'm emulating my father, and you're emulating your father, and Christ will go on to explain that. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. They're very proud of that. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Abraham walked by faith. Abraham trusted in God by faith. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me. A man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. First, you don't know who your daddy is. Second is, you want to kill yourself. The third is, well, at least we weren't born from fornication. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my words. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He speaks a lie. He speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Wow. Jesus calls him out at the very core. He says, guys, you want to kill me and the reason you want to kill me is because your father is Satan. You're wanting to please Satan. This would had to have been a huge shock to them. They thought that they were following God. But in fact, they were Satanists. This is not what we think of Satanists, right? We think of Satanists with upside-down crosses and really dark clothes and all goth and... Right? And these guys were about as squeaky clean as you could get outwardly and looked like, like light, but in fact that they were darkness and they were seeking to kill Jesus. We have... Christ describing to us the nature of Satan, that Satan's a murderer, and he's always been a murderer from the beginning. He's always desired to kill and destroy. They're following in the footsteps of Satan by wanting to murder Christ. There's no part of the truth in Satan. He completely rejects the truth and is the father of lies and speaks from his own resources. Verse 45 But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Before Abraham was, I am. Again, Christ returning to this theme of him being deity. His eternal existence. He's saying, before Abraham, who even came into existence, I am. I am. 
the nation of Israel, especially these religious leaders, they put so much focus on Abraham because Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Abraham. I existed before Abraham. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? More name calling. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. This is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Again, in context of John 8, what is Christ's word? To believe that he's God. If you believe that Jesus is God, if you continue in that place of faith, trusting in the gospel, you're going to have eternal life. You'll never see death. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ here in a few weeks with with Easter. But we can celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day, amen? And the message of the resurrection of Christ is that he's defeated death. The sting of death has been removed. We're not gonna see death even though we're gonna die physically. Our last physical breath here is followed by our first breath in, in eternal life. Verse 52. You guys doing okay? It's a long chapter. It's daylight savings time. We've got some extra coffee out in the foyer. So it's free today. Be blessed. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. You say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is exactly what Christ is saying, that he's greater than Abraham and greater than the prophets. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you've not known him, but I know him. If I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. (laughs) But I know him and keep his word. I just wish we had facial expressions and tone when Christ said these things. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. What this speaks of is the fact that Abraham looked forward to a Messiah. It also tells us to some degree that Abraham understood that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. And it could be in Genesis 18 that Jesus visited with Abraham, that it was a Christophanes, Christ coming onto the pages of the Old Testament. It also could have been in Genesis 22, when Abraham was asked to offer Isaac, and Isaac says, we've got the wood and the fire, but where's the offering? And Abraham said, but God will provide himself a lamb. And in that moment, Abraham realized that ultimately God would send his son. Because a ram was provided in the thicket, but not a lamb. Somewhere in Abraham's theology, He rejoiced in the day of Christ. He saw the day of Christ. And Jesus is saying, if you're into Abraham, you will believe in me because Abraham rejoices in me. Verse 57, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Saying, do the math, you're a young man and you say that you have seen Abraham? Why did they pick 50 years old? In Numbers 4 verse 3 it says, that the Levites could serve as a priest until they were 50 years old, and then they were to pass it on to the younger men. They're saying, you're not even 50 years old. You haven't even arrived yet. 
and yet you're claiming to have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Emphasizes this I am statement again. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They're ready to kill Christ, but Christ is not ready to be killed. This isn't his day to be killed. So as the great I am, he simply is able to hide himself and walk through this angry crowd and this angry multitude. Religion or relationship? Religion or relationship? The Pharisees were so good at religion, but it pointed to themselves, it pointed to being judgmental, it resulted in the rejection of Christ. This woman who was caught in adultery, she wasn't so good at religion. She failed at the rules, but she came into genuine relationship with Christ and found forgiveness and freedom. We need to be reminded, guys, it's not about religion. It's not about trying to fulfill a system of works in order to have God's favor. We could never do enough in order to receive God's forgiveness. Is giving important? Yes. Is reading your Bible important? Yes. Is following the Lord important? Yes. But is it those things that save us? Is it those things that bring us into right relationship with God? No. Is it religion that's going to set us free from sin? How well have rules done in helping you overcome struggle with sin? I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. Oh, I'm so angry about not getting angry, right? But does relationship with Jesus work? Absolutely. Knowing his grace, knowing his forgiveness, who he is, spending time with him, abiding in his word, the Son sets you free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this reminder that it's not about religion. It's not about coming to church in and of itself. It's not about trying to fill boxes, check boxes. But it's a relationship with you. We thank you that you're God, that you are the great I am. And that your story, your testimony is that you loved the world enough to die for our sins and rise again so that we could be your children. Would you take us deeper into that sonship and that daughtership? May we know the height and depth and the width of your love. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.